0: Hello, hello everyone. This is Kim C and you're listening to the year of underrated Stephen King, a podcast where one university English teacher excavates the rusty and dusty findings of the King's underrated works. Hello, my friends. Greetings from the newly arrived month of December. December brings the winter solstice and uh, means we've only got one more month in this endless hellscape of 2020. So if you're like me, I'm hoping we hit the gas on this month because I'm super over it. So over it all of it. The disease, the dying, the politics, the fighting, the drama, and the chilly weather. I'm so tired in my soul, folks. Ergo, I'm pleased to be with you today to discuss an incredibly beautiful, really magical title from King recommended to me from a few constant readers of which I'm so extremely grateful because to you, my treasured King fan brethren, I tip my hat, because I believe this book was exactly what I needed post Bag of Bones last week's episode, as well as beginning the holiday season and saying farewell to the year that was. That title, drum roll please, is 1999's Heart's in Atlantis. Now before I begin my formal introduction to this stunningly gorgeous, swollen with beautiful writing and melancholy and all-around greatness, during my reading of this very unusual set of, well, I've decided to label Hearts in Atlantis a collection of interconnected stories. I didn't come to this decision lately and found it very challenging, as one of the reasons why I think Hearts in Atlantis is so cool is because it's so random and weird, my guys. And if you've read it, you'll kind of gather what I'm talking about, because we have five stories, but two of them are, technically speaking, I think, too long to be novellas which I, so when we get down to like the nitty gritty, uh, when you pass the 120 page, maybe the 150 page rule, or 40,000 words, which one of them most definitely does, it is a mini novel for sure. Looking at that, I think we only really have one novella, three short stories, one mini novel. So it feels very wrong to call them interconnected novellas, as it doesn't apply to everything. It also doesn't seem correct to say short stories, as that does not apply. So right from the get-go, this title seems to defy lots of appropriate categorization, which is one of the many reasons why I love it. There are so many reasons why, and I can't wait to share them all with you but I think it best for my sanity to, uh, just avoid getting overly technical with the whole thing. So I've decided to call this very unique Fabergé egg that is Hearts in Atlantis a collection of interconnected narratives or stories. Interconnected stories, period. That will have to do. However, before I go any further, friends, I must announce now that this episode is only part one. And I also did not come to this decision lightly. I will explain uh, more on that. But because this collection, this overflowing gem of a collection is so jam-packed with good stuff. There is no way I could give all the content proper justice and spotlight without it being a three-hour episode. And although I'd like to hope I'm not super boring, three hours of my voice alone is a bit much. So in this episode, we're actually going to do something never done before on the year of underrated Stephen King. Never done before, folks. It's the first of its kind. This is one episode for only one story. And that story is that mini novel I had mentioned previously, the first installment of Hearts in Atlantis titled, Low Men in Yellow Coats. So I too, dear listener, struggled with doing this because if you jump back to my previous episodes, usually my two-part episodes are novella collections in which I focus on two stories per episode, nice and concise. It's a formula I greatly enjoy, but this time concerning specifically Hearts in Atlantis. I, <laughs> I had this crushing realization as I was making my way through the novel, uh, the stories, the book. I I didn't think I could pull it off the way I wanted to. This, The way this collection is organized, my friends, is very new for me. I kind of love it because it's so different and at the same time, it's a little bit of a pebble in my shoe when it comes to how I want to attack this thing. So, some of you friends may have encountered other king narratives out there that may be similar in terms of puzzling length output and organization and juxtaposition. But this one is a first for me, and. Also, a first for me is reading this story collection for the very first time over these past two weeks. Very first time, maiden voyage, and adored it. So, Hearts in Atlantis kicks us off in the year 1960 with the longest story of the bunch, Low Men in Yellow Coats, clocking in at 254 pages. Next, after that, we jump in time to 1966 and have a 153-page story, give or take, depending on your edition. Mine is the American hardcover. And that story carries our book's namesake and is titled Hearts in Atlantis. And then following that, we skip to 1983 for a 50-page story called Blind Willie. And lastly, we have two final installments, both taking place in the year 1999. The first is called Why We're in Vietnam at 46 pages. And then we have a teeny tiny final, final um, 13 pager entitled Heavenly Shades of Night Are Falling, of which in my analysis, I'm probably going to sandwich the 1999 stories together if I can, uh, for next week. But that's five tales, my friends. And what's so unique is that Low Men in Yellow Coats is as long as all four of them combined. It is the size of all of them. So... To continue harping on what a unique challenge this was, I tried to make it work where I could do the first two stories, Low Men and Hearts in Atlantis in one episode, but then that would be the two hugest stories in one episode. And then the three smallest ones would dangle behind on a second episode, which could work, but I'm not really sure how well I liked that. And then In addition to the difficult split of the stories, we also have the 2001 film entitled Hearts in Atlantis that I need to talk about as well. And where would I have the room to do that? But I believe for the most part today, um, we are only going to focus on Low Men in Yellow Coats, as it is the strongest, most meatiest narrative, as well as Uh, for the most part, the main inspiration for the 2001 film, which I'm excited to talk about with you guys. So we're only going to focus on one story and one film. I know that's weird. It's weird for me too, but this is such a rich story and such a Oh man, a gloriously beautifully told exploration of themes where Mr. King is truly just king of it all. We've got his power hitters, childhood, friendship, innocence lost, family bonds, trauma, nostalgia. I cannot wait to get into it with you guys. So much good stuff. For this episode, we're going to start by introducing our characters first, as I feel it's important to start here as the following four stories after Low Men in Yellow Coats are going to refer to these characters that we meet in the first story. So we really need to start with square one and introduce everybody as they're going to pop up throughout the collection. I'm so excited to do that because... uh, guys, this collection is bomb.com and we're going to witness these characters growing and changing uh, throughout the next 30 years, which I greatly enjoy. And after that, we're going to explore some of the unique narrative elements within the story, some super strong themes being brought to the table and the fact that I'm salivating to start my Dark Tower journey after this one, friends. For those of you who are new to the podcast, I have not yet read The Dark Tower. I know for shame. It is, uh, it's a crime. I I am aware of this. Um, yeah, it just hasn't happened yet, but I'm determined to begin The Gunslinger in January of 2021, which is coming up rather soon. But this was such a perfect story to get me really intrigued really excited. I got a ton of questions, so I'm absolutely ready to go with what I learned in this story. So I'll explain more about that when we dissect some of the unique literary elements. And then after that, we may explore some of my uh, section, what's working and what's not, in terms of where I feel the novel is full of triumph the story, the mini novel, um, as well as if there's any areas that fell flat, etc. After that, we will definitely be unpacking and exploring the 2001 film starring Anthony Hopkins as Ted Brodigan and sweet, precious baby angel young actor Anton Yelkin, rest in peace as Bobby Garfield so for today i think i've gathered enough stuff uh from this epically rich story to put together an awesome chunk of content with this episode and a proper deep dive into this wonderful narrative and this way i don't feel spread too thin by having to cut corners and cram in two ginormous narratives when i can slice this sandwich in half and this will allow for some tasty leftovers for next week, which will provide a really great continuing episode with the additional three to four stories. So thank you guys so much for handling this very strange, odd dissection of the story collection. It's odd. I I definitely... Um, I get it, (laughs) Uh, the way I had to break it down isn't my favorite. I wrestled with it, I tried to make it work, but no other way but this way sat as well. So here we are, let's make it happen. So to kick us off and to get the engines revving a little bit, I'm excited to set the stage with what King is cooking with in the kitchen because in this collection, friends, we've got King and we've got the 1960s. And if you're a constant reader who has been navigating these waters a bit, this is a dynamite combination where we get awesome narrative power, especially given the fact the time period mentioned is really uniquely dynamic to American history. So the 1960s, for those of us who didn't live through but read about it, is, well, it's a decade that is, in my perspective, a super duper pressure cooker where America in particular was changing in incredible ways. Guys, this decade. So we have, uh, Kennedy elected in 1960 he is assassinated in 1963 which if you have read the oh so wonderful novel 112263 king really does an amazing job of exploring how shocking and terrible that was for the country how much pain and grief it brought which was something that when i read the novel for the first time i had no idea and that was a really powerful thing of this genuinely caused great pain to everyone great shock and pain and immense grief for a total stranger it was it's just an incredible exploration of that so uh definitely read 1122 more on that in a little bit but after the assassination in 63 we have the vietnam war really heating up in 1964. Uh, draft is introduced a little bit after that and then the vietnam war basically cranks up the flames to fires of hell level in 1968 where we also have the assassination of martin luther king my guys, this decade, um, it's just nuts. And for us constant readers, or for those of you who are just fiction fans and history buffs, this decade explored through the eyes of King makes for some really amazing fiction. So just to kind of jog a couple people's memories, uh, although the novel of It takes place in 1958, Uh, we're still right on the cusp of the 60s, just a touch. Um, if you haven't yet read The Body, an absolutely stellar novella within the Different Seasons novella collection, that does take place in the year 1960. So really, really similar, and I think you could line it up right next to Low Men in Yellow Coats. The Young Gents, uh, Gordy, Vern, Chris, all, I'm always forgetting the last one, bless him. Uh, they are also in the same age as our main character in Low Men, around 11, 12, and 13. So usually when we're in that age, age range, we get some masterful character exploration from King. And as I mentioned previously, eleven twenty-two sixty-three, which is just nutballs good. I, I'm just speechless. Um, in that novel, Jake Epping, our main protagonist, goes back to the year 1958. Um, he actually visits Derry for a quick hot minute and says hi to some familiar faces. He hangs out there until 1963. There also may be more stories out there that I haven't read that takes place in this decade. So you constant readers might have the inside scoop, but I, I just really think this is a hotbed of creativity for King, especially since for the long walk fans out there, Mr. Stephen King was 18 years old when he composed his first dystopian epic called The Long Walk while attending college in 1966 and 67. So if you are interested in that one and haven't yet heard my episode, jump back to The Long Walk. I, oh, that one was a rough one. (laughs) But overall, my friends, if you know or if you don't know, the 60s are a gold mind for rich king writing. He captures the details just on another level, especially the music, the fashion, the cars. But regarding this read for me folks, going back to 1960 extensively within this story collection. What's really incredible is how reading about the 1960s in 2020 is shockingly depressingly similar it, it's devastating actually um similar in the fact of it, we're still fighting about the same things uh which is epically tragic um civil unrest is still occurring the same arguments it's, it's really as if that phrase, nothing new under the sun, is in full effect because it's all come back around. I guess the only benefit now is we have slightly more, depending on which state you're in, decriminalized drug, drug use. <laughs> but um, for the most part, rereading this time period that King is exploring what was being fought for and discussed and the social awakenings occurring amongst these young people same 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 my friends it is hauntingly timely just my two cents more on that a bit later it's very possible to disagree but could just be uh the madness of 2020 but reading about the 1960s and where we're at now oh man the wheel. I don't know if it's the wheel of Ka because I don't know what Ka is yet guys (laughs) so all right my summary for low men in yellow coats is the following. In the summer of 1960, 11-year-old Bobby Garfield is dreaming of a bicycle for his birthday when he meets Ted again outside the apartment he and his mother share. The elderly Ted is warm and encourages Bobby's love of books, and the two form a friendship that quickly fills the void of Bobby's deceased father. Ted asks Bobby to help keep an eye out for bad men who want to take him away, low men who wear yellow coats, who post missing pet signs around town, pets that do not exist. Bobby agrees, not knowing that his friend Ted is more than meets the eye, and his friendship will be a life-changing and soul-defining connection that ends much too soon. Okay, I'm ready to head into our next section, but before we go, please be aware that I'm going to dance around spoilers. I do my best, my very best, not to fully reveal character outcomes and plot arcs, but if you haven't read the story and want to remain spoiler free, please take a breather from this. investigation and hang on just a bit as I would hate to ruin anything for you. But if you have read Low Men in Yellow Coats, as well as Hearts in Atlantis in general, this should be a nice return for you. A hopefully welcome walk down memory lane with some delightfully complex characters who have such strong melancholy... Oh my gosh, so without further ado, let's hop on our bikes and paddle down pedal, not pedal. <laughs> we are not rowing. Paddle down to Asher oh, I always said it again. Pedal. Pedal down to Asher Avenue. Let's do that and explore the characters of low men in yellow coats. Okay, listeners, our bikes have led us to the heroes, villains, and honorable mention section of low men and yellow coats. But before we begin, I did want to include a few things I forgot to mention in the introduction that I feel a little necessary and appropriate. In my research, I noticed the reviews for Hearts in Atlantis are generally leaning from the high to mid to high side, with really high reviews on the audiobook version. And after I got a copy myself, I completely understand why that is. Uh, For the audiobook version, we have Stephen King and actor William Hurt narrating the stories. Steve does a really good job, of course, as you know if you've heard him narrate some of his other works, which he's recorded quite a few. Some readers are a fan. Others are not, as his voice is interesting and a little particular. But when you realize it's King, it it doesn't really matter and I really enjoy it. Uh, But William Hurt, in particular, is the narrator for Low Men in Yellow Coats. And my friends, it's outstanding it's off the charts great because William Hurt is tremendous and actually performs the story with you, or pardon me, for you. I wish it was with you. That would be fun. For you. And as a professional actor, he just takes it to an entirely new level. Uh, With those acting chops, he takes a lot of liberties with dramatic pausing. We get some really effective yelling and great accents, and he makes an already intriguing, already beautifully written story absolutely compelling. So if you're someone who's previously read Low Men in Yellow Coats and might have found it just so-so, I can't recommend highly enough that you acquire the audio version of the story because what William Hurt does with it is pure magic. Oh, The voice of Ted Brodigan that he creates will melt your heart. So uh, please do me a favor, do yourself a favor, get yourself the audio version of the story and enjoy. And then after you finish listening to the story, go watch the 2004 film by M. Night Shyamalan, The Village. That is my favorite William Hurt role. He's epic and wonderful and has some really gorgeous lines in that one. I know the movie itself, The Village got some hot cold mostly cold reviews, but watch it anyway. There's a really intriguing premise afoot. I don't care if you know about the twist ending, just watch it. It's good. It's, you'll like it. Okay, mini tangent over. Let us now explore the characters that kick off this first mini novel that is Low Men in Yellow Coats as well as Hearts in Atlantis as a Whole our first character of the five we have today is hero 11 year old bobby garfield so this sweet precious angel is an only child and is a young boy with a very good-natured and quiet presence and this is really noticeable pretty quick into the narrative Uh, mostly due to the fact that early on we realized Bobby does not have a paternal figure in his life due to a very tragic sort of random incident, really, Uh, just a tragic death when Bobby was only three years old. But he does have his mother, uh, Liz Garfield, and she is unfortunately not very demonstrative of affection or maternal warmth, which makes Bobby appear for the most part like a young boy who is really trying to do the right thing to please his mother so she A. won't get mad at him and B. will perhaps give him a little bit more warmth without him having to do anything spectacular and just being a kid who has a mom who loves him. So, with these paternal woes uh, from Bobby, he comes across, even though on the page he's very sweet and gentle, in some of the more inward moments, Bobby is very lonely and uh, really we see and detect that loneliness in him. Although he does have some really close friendships that I'll mention more about in a little bit. Inwardly, Bobby is lonely and a little bit sad and therefore retreats to the world of fiction and starts getting really into science fiction and escaping his own reality with books, which who doesn't love to do that? But the character of Bobby instantly melted my heart, guys, because I really empathized with his starving for affection from a mom which we don't see too often in fiction most of the time it can i mean depends on what you're reading of course but typically uh, mothers and sons have a closer warmth between them so i'm glad that king kind of explored a relationship that maybe isn't so warm And one of the other things I enjoyed, not that I'm a behavioral therapist or anything, but there were subtle moments while I observed the character of Bobby Garfield where I got the indication he may feel like he is the parent sometimes. And I say this because we have some scenes of Bobby's mother where she's overheard sobbing in her bedroom. Her emotions are all over the place. Bobby will walk into a room and know she's been crying or know she's angry or stressed out about something. This is also stemming from the fact, I will talk about it in greater detail when I explore Liz, but Bobby knows his mom is affiliated with a boss that's not a good guy. His name is Don Biderman. He makes Bobby very uncomfortable and with all of this, this poor boy has a lot of worry and anxiety and that really hurts my heart as the reader when we have a child who doesn't get to be a child for very long. And for constant readers out there, um, King does this very well and his work uh, really frequently brings lasting childhood trauma. More on that in a bit. But Bobby is a lovely character who escapes into the world of books and his life becomes quickly enriched, particularly by uh, John Steinbeck and William Golding. And from these novels, he is soon questioning and looking at the world from a more adult perspective. So Bobby is so great. And one of the reasons why the story is so powerful is his connection to Ted Brodigan, who is another hero uh, who I'm going to talk about next. But overall, reading Bobby Garfield, I got really strong Bill Denbro vibes from Bobby. And as I revealed more recently from my conversation with uh, my interview with Michael Lake, a couple episodes ago, I think Bill Denbro, one of our main child protagonists from the novel It may be my favorite Stephen King character for a ton of reasons, mind you, but some of the main ones stem from the fact of how this character represents how much it sucks to be a kid with such an anxious mind and to hate yourself for things that are out of your control. And I think with the character of Bill Denbro as well as the character of Bobby Garfield, I detect that same amount of crippling mental stress in both of them, where being a carefree kid doesn't last very long due to the external pressures, fears, trauma, the heavy weight of adult responsibility and shame. Gotta have shame, just crushing down on them, and it breaks my heart. And I feel oh, my friends, I feel so deeply for them just all of my heart. I just feel so much. And I think we always identify with characters who remind us of ourselves a little bit, but at present. I've been thinking about it a lot. Uh, Bill Denbrough is my favorite Stephen King character but I don't know I'm really digging young Bobby Garfield as well so maybe there could be room for a runner-up spot down the road. But the last thing I want to mention about Bobby is how heroic he is and why in fact he is a bona fide hero in this story. So there is one scenario that echoes very loudly in the, the, throughout the novel where Bobby rescues his friend Carol when she's wounded and for being a slim and not very tall young person, he lifts his friend and carries her several blocks to safety And then technically, this next scenario is heroic, but in a kind of vindictive way. So I'm not sure if it works, but I actually liked the fact that Bobby got some street justice on behalf of Carol and went after the boy who hurt her. It's a bit menacing when you read uh, it at the, when you read it, um, but at the same time, Bobby just absolutely takes control. He shows no fear. He's really brave and he gets some revenge. And as the reader, you're totally cheering for him. At least I was. I really don't feel there was a lot of room for, oh, shame on Bobby. He shouldn't be doing that. No, you really want it to go down the way it goes down. And I do think it was heroic, perhaps a bit unwise, but heroic on behalf of Carol. Our next character is another hero. We have Ted Brodigan, who is the new tenant in Bobby's apartment building. And he is another wonderful, wonderful hero that comes onto the scene and connects with Bobby through his love of books. And he, being a very perceptive, wise a uh, person is someone who sees that Bobby is really craving more from his mother. So I think Ted gravitates toward him out of pity, maybe a little bit and perhaps empathy for sure. But Ted is on the older side. He's elderly. He's got white hair and a gentle disposition about him similar to uh, Bobby he uh for being elderly he seems to have all his faculties he seems still pretty sharp ted is a mega fan of root beer and chain smoking cigarettes (laughs) um and along with being extremely well read Ted is just a cool guy who has a quiet, unassuming presence. He enjoys obscure films and thinking and he's he's one of those that's just perfect in the silence and you wonder what they're thinking and I think uh, everybody's always into the, the silent ones. Um, But I believe through Ted, Bobby finds a comforting male connection that is more of a grandson-grandfather bond, at least in my eyes, rather than father and son, given the fact that sometimes we see more pressure from fathers onto sons uh, in narratives, especially in that prepubescent age Oftentimes, especially in the 60s, there might have been some vicariously living through their younger sons. Not sure, but what we... I don't think we have that with the characters of Ted and Bobby. Everything regarding their time spent together seems to provide Bobby with inspiration and relief and total escape from the pressure cooker of living with a mom who is cold to him and makes it really hard to be a kid... And even though Bobby's mom is not abusive, she's really emotionally withdrawn, which could be said as a way of tiptoeing on the road to abuse if it keeps going. But Ted, as I'm... Going to get into deeper in our next section about unique literary elements is definitely supernatural, my friends. He's got some abilities, of which I will nerd out soon, uh, that get passed to Bobby through physical touch. Granted, I must preface once more, I have not read The Dark Tower. And this story, I think, is the strongest dose of Dark Tower stuff I've had. Other than the short story Little Sisters of Valoria, within the collection Everything's Eventual, that one went way over my head, guys. I was completely lost. Then there was the actual story of Everything's Eventual uh, starring Dinky, I believe is the character's name. I think that's where the word breaker was mentioned to me. But again, more on that later. We're, we're not going to nerd out too early. But Ted Brodigan has a kind of cognizant touch where those he touches soon after are able to see hidden things in their mind. They're able to know hidden things about people they encounter and scenarios they're placed in. And that's a huge yet delicate current of energy throughout this story. What's interesting is King doesn't make it all about Ted's abilities, but rather focuses on Ted and Bobby's relationship, which is really nice and encouraging. And that's what allows the reader to fall more in love with the characters rather than focusing too much on the weird supernatural king spin that uh, might be brewing. So some people might not like this story because of that, because we do have those king readers that are just hungry for the supernatural, hungry for the horror and the freak show. Um, But this is more of a slower examination. We have a subtle thread being woven through in regards to the supernatural. But pleasantly, every time Ted and Bobby are together on the page, it's mostly positive. And that is, of course, until the low men who are after Ted, aka the bad guys in yellow coats, that notion and that encroaching negative thing to be afraid of starts to consume Bobby's mind. He's once again plagued with anxiety and the whole childhood innocence starts to spiral out from under him which makes the absence of Ted's presence toward the conclusion of the story, minimal spoilers, it makes it very upsetting. So what I like about Ted is that even when the chips seem to be down, he doesn't freak out or thrash or run or he he's calm and brave and very whole and almost zen a little bit. And he is like a living totem that just exemplifies do not be afraid to young Bobby. And I I super enjoy when King gives us a character like Brodigan who shines super duper bright, blindingly bright, but we don't get to hang out with them as long as we want. So the moments when they're on the page are larger than life and really special. So I really, really like Ted Brodigan, guys. More of him, please. I super duper hope he shows up in other novels. And perhaps one of you kind listeners can inform me if Mr. Brodigan is in the Dark Tower. I hope he is. Please tell me he is. Maybe. Thank you. Okay. Number three, our villain is Liz Garfield. She is in her mid thirties and a widow and single young mother. And apparently the reader doesn't exactly know what's true, but she claims that the passing of Bobby's father caused a lot of financial burden for them, which has filled her with a ton of bitterness and with a money scarcity mentality to which she's very strict and pretty tight with money. And this bleeds into her interactions with Bobby as she won't splurge on a birthday present for him, get him the bike he so desires with every breath, nor will she even help him earn money to pay for it and do like a half and half kind of deal, which would have been the kind thing to do. But yet there is extra money. So Bobby finds out through the help of Ted's touch that Liz has stashed cash and new dresses have been purchased. So it's a very complex device between Liz and Bobby and the notion of money is this very adult thing that poor Bobby has to wage war with mentally and you try and comprehend why his mom would be this way with money and be so, make it such a big deal, be so complicated about it. It's super intense and a very dark theme that's being explored. Um, the money issue really shines a bright spotlight on Liz as a stingy Scrooge-esque person. So of course this absolutely contributes to her being a villain in the story, but what's incredibly enjoyable with King's writing here is that he makes her a complex character because while she is a villain regarding her chilly mothering to Bobby, her stinginess, she is also a victim of an evil boss and she's a victim of her unwise decisions brought on by a sense of powerlessness and desperation. So when I was reading this story, I was really examining Liz quite a bit and realized her narrative made me very sad. Um, She was, in various stages of this story, playing with fire concerning a boss, Don Biderman, who showed himself to be incredibly predatory. I mean, my friends, this guy, Don Biderman, is a walking sexual harassment lawsuit waiting to happen. Like, He's abysmal. He's disgusting. And of course, for some of my uh, constant reader friends out there, you know, when King introduces a predator, it's just going to get worse. And that's exactly what happens. There is a business trip that happens. And although... We don't get explicit details. There is sexual violence and physical violence against Liz. And thank fudge, it's not as graphic as Bag of Bones because holy jeez, I would not have been able to endure two novels with explicit rape without driving off a bridge, as it seems that Hearts in Atlantis was the release title immediately following Bag of Bones. So thank almighty heaven, King does not include another misery-inducing rape scene here, because I could not, guys. I could not even. I'd be dead. But it happens to Liz and it's not good and heads up to you survivors out there the subject is present but I greatly appreciate how King handles it this time and there's not as much intense focus on the actual event thank god but uh, what's interesting is the impact of it is much more filtered down towards Bobby which is a good bad kind of unique thing because Bobby psychically kind of knows about it slash finds out about it and becomes he's he's just this little person complex um what's the word i'm looking for uh come contemplating uh conf- i don't know <laughs> Bobby is trying to break down this awful event that happened to his mother and he is so frustrated with her for allowing it to happen to herself and Ted bless him helps immensely with this area of the story and Ted provides this awesome quote guys there's so many great quotes in this in this collection but he tells Bobby even lion tamers know the risk But they climb into the cage anyway, because that's where the paycheck is. So good, guys. Um, But he tells this to Bobby to kind of tell him, you you can't blame your mom. So as the reader, I wanted to hate Liz at first because she is very cold to Bobby. It's heartbreaking. She puts so much mental and emotional hot coals on such a young soul, a developing mind who is at face value, a really sweet, well-behaved boy. He's good friend. He's just a good person. And like we've seen a lot of King works, if it's not a demonic monster after a child, it's a terrible parent who ruins them forever and ever. But even though he breaks our hearts, it makes for unforgettable characters and fictional power that is glued to the reader for all time. But to highlight a little bit of positive concerning Liz and why she is both villain and victim, which is a wonderful complex character, thankfully, there is genuine love for Bobby. There is genuine heartfelt love for her son. Unfortunately, it's just buried under all kinds of other stuff, which, as a woman of her time, it had to suck to be in the situation she was in. And I, I think that's why I enjoy the character of Liz so much, this complexity, because when I look at her, I just have to give her a lot of slack in a lot of ways, because there really isn't a right way to be as a woman when the time of existing is just a mess and the world is against you. So good stuff, sad stuff frustrating stuff with the character of Liz Garfield. All right, our final four and five are my honorable mentions. We have 11-year-old Carol Gerber and Sully John, which I believe Sully John is his nickname and it's John Sullivan. So both of these Uh, young people are Bobby's close friends and they seem to hang out frequently as a trio and at the beginning of the story we have several cute moments King gives us between the three of them and then we also have some good ones when Bobby pairs up with them as individuals. So regarding Carol Gerber, she is loving and maternal and feisty and blonde. And I kind of had this epiphany today, guys. Have you noticed King really likes blonde females in his novels? I was just thinking about it. I don't know if I'm just, it's just a quink at ink, but, um, you know, Charlie from Firestarter, blonde. Uh, Abra Stone from uh, Doctor Sleep, blonde. Um, the list goes on and on. Um, the lady from 112263, Miss Sadie, blonde. Many, many blondes. So um, let me know if you've noticed a lot of blondes. I want to say this is like the twelfth blonde we had. Rose McClendon Daniels. Blonde from Rose Matter. Um, We had Maddie and sweet baby Kyra from Bag of Bones, Blonde. So uh, yeah, have you guys noticed that? Is it, is Blonde sort of like the blue chambray work shirt, which is (laughs) featured prominently in King's work? Okay, pardon the tangent my friends, but Carol is a sweet girl and she's definitely a character and uh, a wonderful buddy, (laughs) I had a little brain fart there, um, for Sully John and Bobby. And they don't treat her like like an alien, being the only girl. She definitely is one of the gang. They are a wonderful trio. Uh, What I also really enjoy is when Bobby pairs off, uh, there is some super duper young romance blossoming between he and Carol. We have an awesome Ferris wheel cute scene that I loved uh, concerning Carol and Bobby. It's super precious. I really enjoyed it. But the two of them, Carol and Bobby, share some really deep experiences together. Carol meets Ted again. He helps her greatly when she is injured. And Carol also sees the complexity of Liz and Bobby's relationship. And of course, as we know uh, in King's work, that shared time in the trenches, much like the Losers Club in It and Other and sort of the the quest of the young boys headed to see the body in the body, um, the novella within different seasons, the shared time in the trenches really bonds young uh child characters and we see that here with bobby and carol together and uh i am so excited to tell you just how profound the bond between carol and bobby is as we make our way through the other stories we're gonna see this bubble up again um so it's really really nicely done but with the progression of Bobby and Carol's relationship. Carol sees Bobby cry and Carol's parents are on the brink of divorce and between two 11 year olds there is a deep connection and intimacy that joins them together in a way where they will always remember each other and always be significant in one another's lives to one another's lives which is why i love king so freaking much because this is what he does folks he creates these likable children and pits them against life's menacing obstacles and then the writing just clutches you and doesn't let go so For me, my friends, there were moments when I'm reading about Bobby and Carol and Sully John all together and I just... I just have a moment and I I just sort of speak out loud to the text and say, Steve, just take my money. Take it all. Take my heart. It's yours. It's just too dang good. And uh, yeah, I don't think I'm alone in that. (laughs) So Sully John is my fifth character, my last honorable mention, and he is a very charming presence in the story as he is a bit of comic relief. But not necessarily like Richie Tozer from It kind of comic relief or Vern Tessio from The Body where it's just non-stop jokes. With Richie, he's definitely a comedian, just just cracking jokes constantly. Whereas Vern Tessio is a little bit of a precious simpleton and uh, he's the butt of many jokes, bless him. But Sully John is really theatrical and obnoxious in a funny, lighthearted way. He always wants to have fun and entertain himself and others. So he doesn't necessarily want to make you laugh. You just happen to laugh at Sully John and have a lot of fun and let loose. Because he's always up to something, quoting movies, wild and around, jumping around. He's delightful. And within the story, we don't have too many strong scenes with Sully John. But Sully John is the unit of the trio where he sees... Unfortunately, what happens to Bobby near the end where I won't reveal concretely what happens, but regarding the experience Bobby goes through, Bobby suddenly morphs into someone who is very angry, very moody, and no longer a jovial kid who wants to let things roll off him and just have fun. Bobby's very hurt and sad, and that is derived from pain and soon mutates into rebellion and the trio unfortunately splits although we will discuss in next week's episode and the final four stories they do cross paths down the road again carol and sully john are together for a while i'm not gonna include too many details on that but bobby DEFINITELY changes into a James Dean-esque rebel without a cause type character at the end. And both Carol and Sully John lose a friend they really cared about. Um, Physically they lose him as Liz and Bobby move cities at the end and emotionally they lose him as they both see the decline and great change in their friend before he leaves. So, those are the main players for this oh-so-wonderfully-written mini-novel. Thank you guys for hanging out with me. I enjoy all five of them so much. To recap, we have Bobby Garfield, our hero, Ted Broadgan, our other hero, villain but victim as well, Liz Garfield, and our two honorable mentions, Carol Gerber and Sully John. So, I hope you guys enjoyed our deep dive into the characters. Please reach out to me if you observe anything I may have missed regarding some of these folks. So, okay, my 60s kids, let's race each other down the hill into the next section where I look at the unique literary elements of the story and ask all of you some Dark Tower related questions. Up next. <laughs> Hello listeners. Thank you for hanging out. We've reached our third section within the analysis of low men in yellow coats. This is the unique literary elements section or the chunk of the episode where I like to explore what jumped out at me in terms of King creating this tale. So I've got three little topics I want to share with you. The first one is called channeling grade school classics. So, what I like about what King does inside Low Men in Yellow Coats are channel two classic novels. One, The Lord of the Flies by William Golding, and number two, of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. And I don't know if it's intentional or coincidental, but both of these novels, at least in the American secondary education curriculum that I'm aware of. Are circulating throughout the grade levels so when you encounter these references within the text there is a large majority of readers who most definitely will have probably read at least one title if not both titles which I think is really great I also think these classics are completely international as well but if you are overseas and you're wanting to connect to King a little deeper with this story particularly I highly, highly recommend you check out these titles as, for the most part, they're very short, which is why I think grade school kids like them, but they're crucially important. They have uh, really good discussion topics attached to them, and when they're brought up in fiction, these two novels really soar because King uses them for a foundation. So if you guys listened to the last episode I put out, the last novel, Bag of Bones, that entire story is rooted in the modern Gothic novel, Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, and it super duper melted my butter because of it. But when you go back and, and have a personal connection to the novels being mentioned, I just think it makes the text so much richer. So I think that any reader coming to Low Men in Yellow Coats having read Of Mice and Men and Lord of the Flies, that's why I believe this story really has attaching power. Also, if I'm correct, granted I haven't read this title yet, But Blaze by Richard Bachman is also heavily channeling Of Mice and Men, particularly the character of Lenny. So if you haven't read Of Mice and Men, do it soon so we can read Blaze together coming up on the podcast and get a lot more out of it. So within Low Men and Yellow Coats, I think there is heavier focus on Lord of the Flies uh, as of Mice and Men is a little bit more of a lighter note that comes toward more towards the end of the story. But King does an awesome job of weaving those novels into his fiction in such a beautiful way that makes this English teacher quite happy. So number two, I am calling this one Greetings Dark Tower. (laughs) Okay guys, so once more... (coughs) I haven't read The Dark Tower yet. It will begin soon, very soon, as in the next few weeks, but over my years of Loving King, I've talked with many friends and readers about what the heck this epic series is about, and I've just gathered little breadcrumbs from our conversations over the years. There was also a Dark Tower movie starring Idris Elba as Roland and Matthew McConaughey as someone bad. I think I'm not exactly sure who. I think that was a 2017 release. It looked cool but apparently it was a train wreck and I didn't watch it because I was warned by other constant readers vehemently. They told me, do not even look at it. Don't go near it. Not good. So I didn't. But I am familiar with a few things Dark Tower. So here's what I know. I'm just gonna put it out there on your lap. So I know it's kind of a western-esque fantasy epic. (laughs) There's probably a better way to break down that genre, but I know there's western elements and I know there's fantasy elements. Maybe sci-fi elements as well. So perhaps it is a genre blurring, genre bending epic. We could say that. I know there are animals (laughs) in the story who are kind of important, uh, slash significant. So I know animals are a big thing. I gathered this by the ending of the most precious novel to my heart. I know I'm slightly a minority in that, uh, the girl who loved Tom Gordon has a Dark Tower-esque ending. Uh, I know there is a Crimson King who is the bad guy, However, is he the dark man or wait is the dark man Randall flag? I pardon folks I might be getting my bad guys mixed up but in my experience, I mean please don't crucify me for saying this statement. I think a lot of King's bad guys are kind of all in the same grab bag <laughs> um, in the in the king universe maybe um, The additional things I know about the tower, there is a beam. So I don't know a lot about the beam. I'm assuming a beam of energy, a beam of... uh something to do with universes. Um, I don't think it's a beam of light. Maybe it is a beam of light. Um, I know there is an expression called ka, or that's a word really. Um, I know the expression all things serve the beam, which makes me very curious. The word ka, I think is um, a wheel? <laughs> is this a physical wheel? Is this an emotional wheel? Is this a place? Is this a... I, I'm very curious. I also know that if you're in a group of friends... Oh, Ka is also destiny. Um, that's what's said in this story by Ted Brodigan. He says, Ka is destiny. So, wheel of destiny? Totally making sense. I, I'm gathering... That's probably a thing. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly. The quartet is that your troop of destiny, your friends, your your group of people brought together. In that case, I think that everyone in the stand is probably a quartet, right? Maybe might get too ahead of myself there. So I know that also within the stories, there's some traveling, perhaps some world hopping. And uh, overall, folks, that's all I have is those precious little nuggets of partial info. I very well could be incorrect on a few of those. Uh, so I also know Roland Deschain is the main guy, I think. So I think he's, he's the dude. So um, that's all I have. And I never before have I been so excited to learn more than after reading Low Men in Yellow Coats. So what I'd like to bring to your attention now is that as I was reading this mini novel, there were a few observations that were new to me and I wanted to mention them to you guys to see if this is a thing or if uh, if it's just a thing that's unique to this story, and not necessarily a Dark Tower thing. So, at this point, I'm just mentally data collecting. So, <laughs> um, so here's what I found within low men and yellow coats. I've got the use of color. So, I don't know. Again, once more, if colors are a super big part of the Dark Tower universe, but one the aspects of color really struck me as I was making my way through the story. I don't know if they're significant. So here's a few that I saw. We have the orange suits or sweaters on the Saint Gabriel bullies so this is Harry Doolin Um, he's the boy who hurts Carol and uh, we see them in a trio when they meet our trio of Carol Bobby and Sully John Harry Doolin and a couple other jerks I don't remember their name but they're wearing orange sweaters that are very very bright orange Um, next probably the most significant use of color is of course the yellow coats of the low men so We have orange and yellow on two sort of villainous group, two groups of villainous figures. So I'm wondering if, you know, if there's colors assigned to bad guys. I don't know. That's reaching probably. But um, the the fact that we have those colors on some villains uh, struck me. We also have the purple DeSoto cars. Um, The model is DeSoto and it's the Uh, when Bobby sees the, the low men in these purple DeSoto cars, he mentioned it as it being otherworldly or like the idea of a car because it was so crazy looking in terms of maybe how vivid it is, how bright the color is. He's probably never seen a purple car like that or paint like that or something. So the purple DeSoto cars they drive, the low men, the next we have red which i adore and if you're a fan of the color red please read a key asap because it's everywhere but we have the red eye of the crimson king this symbol uh that we that's popping up quite a bit and then This was a little freaky, but when Bobby describes what the low men look like up close, they're quite frightening. And they have uh, red lips, seemingly kind of bloody-esque lips, which is very unsettling. So we've got some red, and then also another vivid use of red is at the end of the story, there's this really beautiful moment where Bobby receives a gift of rose petals and they are vivid, vivid, vivid red rose petals. And they just jump out at the reader and I really enjoyed that final scene. So we've got a rose red petals. We've got this this vivid, vivid um, use of color throughout this story. So I don't know if it's just unique to this mini novel or is color a dark tower thing, my friends? Because if it is, I am on board. I am already a fan because color is such a symbolic, amazing literary device to unpack and plug in everywhere. So if this heavy use of color throughout the Dark Tower universe is a thing, I am excited. so um, but the way that they're used within low men and yellow coats really jumped out to me. So super duper curious. Uh, this isn't a color thing, but the other point I wanted to bring to your attention, the lost pet posters. I mention this because I know animals are a thing within the Dark Tower universe. So, Lost Pets posters. Um, is that just specifically for this story? Or I wonder if that's code esque stuff? So, I think I kind of mentioned in our previous section I did, I have spoken with other uh, constant readers about the story Everything's Eventual featuring Dinky, I forget his last name, but they mention him being a breaker and Ted Broadigan's also a breaker. So the word breaker, I have no idea what that is, guys. I have no idea what it is, what it does, who, who that is, I'm lost. But it seems the code esque nature of the lost pet posters is that a breaker thing? Is that. <laughs> I feel I probably need to stop soon because I know Dark Tower fans have probably face palmed real hard right around this time. So, uh, yeah, I'm just the fact that the animals are correlating and popping up. Uh, on the last pet posters. I I feel myself going down the rabbit hole with questions and I haven't read the series yet, so perhaps I should dial it down just a skosh. But those were the elements of Low Men in Yellow Coast that got me so excited, my friends. I got so excited and I've never ever wanted to dive in more than right now so of all the other dark tower run-ins i've had thus far i think low men in yellow coats being so beautifully written intriguing great characters it has put more logs on the fire than any other dark tower story i've run into thus far so Um, Before we head into our what's working and what's not portion as well as the 2001 film I cannot wait to talk to you guys about, I'd like to highlight one little baby topic, our last topic uh, in regards to the notion of the loss of childhood as a poisonous seed. So, uh, with this story, we kind of mentioned it earlier when we were talking about characters, how we have a lot of emotional turmoil, uh, for the character of Bobby and the theme of childhood lost or the loss of innocence is a huge, huge in all caps, huge theme in King's work. It's some, it's an area of fictional, Uh, exploration that he just shines brighter than anybody I've ever read, really. And uh, so what's interesting is with this particular protagonist of Bobby Garfield, uh, King exposes him to a lot of adolescent good stuff. Thank God we have strong friendships, we have a first kiss, we have lots of cuteness, but then we also get that deep sadness, disappointment, fear, and then with Bobby particularly, this overwhelming desire to wish you could change the circumstances of the adult world you're stuck in. And the bond between Ted and Bobby is really special, guys. Please read this story because it's really special and it's really there for the reader and it grows stronger and stronger the longer they're together. Um, and Bobby in general, he's just this vulnerable little boy with lots of pinpricks on his heart from a withdrawn mom, a deceased father, but it's kind of a really epic clash of things toward the end of Low Men and Yellow Coats is when Ted is no longer in Bobby's story, just tiptoeing around spoilers, um, rather than go some of the ways King characters can go after extreme disappointment. Uh, for example, uh, mentioning in particularly here, I'm getting ahead of myself, some King characters after a devastating childhood, uh, go onto a successful path or a normal path. Uh, If we look at the Losers Club after they all leave Derry, for the most part, they go on to lead normal lives where they forgot about Derry and, um, have measurable levels of success. We also see this in the novella The Body with the character of Chris. He was kind of like the, town screw up all of his family his brothers had a terrible reputation within the town of just being losers and he works really hard and uh, is amazingly successful academically personally however what king does here is with the character bobby rather than him sort of going on and becoming Someone of good fortune, at least what we see in this particular story, is Bobby gets a poisonous seed planted inside of him. And all that pain grows into immense anger and he becomes a rebel in every possible way. So with Bobby, rather than, you know, once they move away to Boston, he and his mom... It just gets worse. Uh, He is so angry, and all anger comes from pain. So the pain is so great. So he's just morphed into this angry, law breaking young man, hating the world, hating everything, hating his mom, hating just the fate of things because he was small and powerless and couldn't impact the world to change the circumstances of ted and and their bond together so i really like that king does that here it makes the story unfortunately head down a much darker turn however i understand it and i appreciate it because it is the first story in the collection so it sort of starts off on a dark note Um, but as the collection progresses, the reader isn't exactly left thinking Bobby is forever just a thug. But in this story particularly, I like that the pain that Bobby felt grew into anger, um, and kind of altered him forever in a negative way. And it kind of shows that poisonous seed got planted. And, um, this is an area of the King, uh, childhood innocence lost theme. It just drives home how sad it is when childhood disappointment can occur on a level that one can never be repaired after it. So I like what King did here by taking this particular childhood, um, innocence story and making it kind of a sad one, kind of a downer. So I found a chunk of text I really like that shows this ultimate toxic seed shift of his character and the planting of it within Bobby. So the scene I'm about to read not only shows the deep shift in his perspective, the strong turn in his character who really is at this point no longer a child. And then toward the end of the scene we also have those literary references I mentioned earlier and how King weaves them in at various moments that I find so brilliant. Oh the King weaving! I'm sure many of you know what I mean by that but this uh, scene begins on 239 in the American hardcover. He was too young and small to do what needed doing in a straightforward way. He would have to be careful, and he would have to be sneaky. Sneaky was alright with Bobby. He no longer had much interest in acting like Audie Murphy or Randolph Scott in the Saturday matinee movies, and besides, some people needed ambushing, if only to find out what it felt like. The hiding place he picked was the little copse of trees where Carol had taken him on the day he went all ushy gushy and started crying, a fitting spot in which to wait for Harry Dooland, old Mr. Robin Hood, Robin Hood riding through the Glen. Harry had gotten a part-time stockboy job at Total Grocery, Bobby had known that for weeks, had seen him there when he was skipping with his mom, or shopping with his mom, <laughs> shopping with his mom. Bobby had also seen Harry walking home after his shift ended at three o'clock. Harry was usually with one or more of his friends. Richie O'Meara was his most common sidekick. Willie Shearman seemed to have dropped out of old Robin Hood's life, just as Sully had pretty much dropped out of Bobby's. But whether alone or in company, Harry Doolin always cut across Commonwealth Park on his way home. Bobby started to drift down there in the afternoons. There was only morning baseball now that it was really hot, and by three o'clock, fields A, B, and C were deserted. Sooner or later, Harry would walk back from work and pass those deserted fields without Richie or any of his other merry men to keep him company. Meanwhile, Bobby spent the hour between three and four p.m. each day in the copse of trees where he had cried with his head in Carol's lap. Sometimes he read a book, the one about George and Lenny made him cry again. Guys like us that work on ranches are the loneliest guys in the world. That was how George saw it. Guys like us got nothing to look ahead to. Lenny thought the two of them were going to get a farm and raise rabbits. But long before Bobby got to the end of the story, he knew there would be no farm and no rabbits for George and Lenny. Why? Because people needed a beast to hunt. They found a Ralph, or a piggy, or a big stupid hulk of a Lenny, and then they turned into low men. They put on their yellow coats, they sharpened a stick at both ends, and then they went hunting. But guys like us sometimes get a little of our own back, Bobby thought as he waited for the day when Harry would show up alone. Sometimes we do. Oh, such a good scene, guys! And as you can see, this young boy has now become a calculated little predator rightly so but at the same time it's an amazing shift in character okay folks let's recap what we went over this section so for my unique literary literary elements we have channeling grade school classics greetings dark tower and our final exploration was the loss of childhood as a poisonous seed so let's pop into the corner pocket for a root beer and a round of pool if you fancy and head into our last and final observations of low men in yellow coats i'll see you there Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. This is our final section exploring low men in yellow coats. This is the area of the episode where I like to say what's working, what's not, as well as take a look at any film adaptations we might have. And today we have 2001's Hearts in Atlantis starring Anthony Hopkins as Ted Brodigan and bless him forever, Anton Yelkin as Bobby Garfield. So let's first jump in with my really only one thing I want to say about low men in yellow coats. So if you guys can tell through the progression of this episode, I am a big fan of this tale. Big, big, big fan of King's writing within this story. I'm just... I'm enjoying all of it. The storytelling, the drama, the characters. So overall, a lot is working for me to a point where I really don't want to nitpick. I don't want to split hairs with this story. However, and I don't even really know if the point I'm about to discuss with you guys is a criticism or if I would put it in the what's not working category, but it's mostly just an observation of, um, so I'm wondering, The after I was finished reading Low Men in Yellow Coats, I realized that I enjoyed it, yes, for the good writing, but also because I didn't feel totally lost by the Dark Tower content. I did have a little bit of an idea what they were talking about, um, and... That I think left a good feeling of feeling included in this story, and so I guess my my thoughts are: Why did he decide to make this such a strong-handed, dark tower-centered story? Uh, forgive me if I just don't realize that Ted Brodigan might be a huge dark tower character. I don't know, or um, or if other things in this story are just, it's impossible to not make it a dark tower story. But the reason why I bring this up is I think about new readers, right? I think about new king readers. So if you found this story, or pardon me, um, this collection, this story in particular at a bookshop or it just fell into your lap and you started reading, would someone enjoy it as much as I did with my moderate uh, knowledge of Dark Tower stuff. So I was thinking, it, it just made me sad to think that what if someone potentially would not enjoy the story as much because toward the end where we get a lot of Dark Tower symbols, a lot of strong nomenclature, I'm wondering if they would have sort of felt confused or just... Um, put off by, by the skew in the narrative. Like what the hell's going on? Um, I think they could get the low men in yellow coats. Like, okay, there's some bad guys after him and they just particularly wear yellow coats and they advertise in code around town. Um, I think that could, anybody could pick that one up in terms of some sort of lone shark getting in deep with bad people, which for the most part works, but I'm just thinking about brand new King readers who have zero idea about the Dark Tower, like no idea what the hell's going on at all. And I'm wondering if maybe the power of the story is might have been diluted for them or lost on them because, you know, where we have these scenes where Ted has a trance-like moment where he is in a kind of catatonic state because uh, the low men have infiltrated his mind and they do it to Bobby as well. And so I I love it. It's working. It's good. But I, I wonder if some toward the end where we actually see the low men, where we actually have Ted utter phrases such as all things serve the beam and it is Ka and or the I don't know if he says Ka or the will of Ka or something like that. Forgive my misquoting. Um, And then we actually have the low men and they're kind of freaky looking and you know, there's the, the red eye and the Crimson King. And all of a sudden this story about a boy and his mom and the sixties and, you know, this guy who's kind of psychic, um, all of those are easily digestible, easily enjoyable. But then it starts to really get some heavy, um, Dark Tower stuff. And I I was so, so thrilled that the tiny little nuggets of information I have over the years allowed me to enjoy the story. But I was just thinking about how maybe a little bit of it might get lost on a brand new reader. So I guess I wonder if maybe there could have been a alternate take in which the Dark Tower info was stripped. And that's kind of what the film does, which we're going to talk about here in just a second. But I, I, I was just sort of, uh, if you guys jump back to my episode on Everything's Eventual, which is an awesome short story collection, there's a huge, almost, I think it's over 50 page, uh, little, uh, novella in there that's 100% a Roland Dark Tower story. I was so lost friends and I really did not enjoy the story because I was like what is going on I am lost and I tried really hard to enjoy what I could enjoy but I was like screw this like this is way too long I feel so lost so I I was just hoping that the power of this story isn't lost on new readers because King does take a huge skewed Uh, u-turn for Dark Tower stuff. So uh, personally, in my... uh, when I was reading Little Sisters of Aloria inside Everything's Eventual, King does give a little preface like, hey, this is a Dark Tower story, just so you know. Um, I wish that might have been included in this... So maybe a reader could kind of at least read the dust cover of The Gunslinger and just kind of have an idea like, oh, okay, this is a thing. The Crimson King, okay. Like, um, I'm just gonna, yeah, I'll go with it. Um... I'm, I'm kind of wishing for that however at the same time I'm kind of like Kimsey, just shut up like the dark tower is a monumentally huge part of King's uh, body of work it's just something that's really found in all of his novels so you just need to be quiet and get on board there's that so um that's my only sort of observation for low men in yellow coats it's such a powerful story but I'm wondering I'm hoping what do you guys think if maybe uh it's a little too heavy on the dark tower just to scosh toward the end or if you feel it's it's okay. Uh so our last and final exploration of the low men in yellow coats is the 2001 film directed by Scott Hicks titled Hearts in Atlantis, which is a great title because Hearts in Atlantis is beautiful, but this movie only focuses on, um, low men in yellow coats. It's, it's really cool. We're going to talk about it here in just a second, but, uh, Scott Hicks, I wanted to take a quick moment to, I love this guy and he directed a film I adore. It's one of my all-time favorites. This was also based on a novel that's one I treasure and it's Snow Falling on Cedars by David Gutterson hauntingly good just perfection and stunningly beautiful and for anyone who has visited or enjoys the pacific northwest read that novel exceptional so beautiful so he directed snow falling on cedars starring my love <laughs> ethan hawk um uh, but he in 2001 he did uh hearts in atlantis and we are first going to start with the performances guys because that is the reason why i want all of you to first read the story and then secondly immediately watch hearts in atlantis starring anthony hopkins and anton yelkin um Oh my God! I hope I can keep it together because uh, when I watched the film, it was the first time I had seen it all the way through. I had seen bits and pieces over the years, but being uh, where we are now and just uh, letting everything come together, having read this wonderful story, it's a great adaptation. I was thrilled by it, but also the performances. Um, listeners, I cried all over the place. I was just crying off and on because these actors uh, crushed my heart just crushed it it's so good it's just so good um anthony hopkins as ted broadigan in my opinion is perfection i mean granted anthony hopkins is an iconic legend a legend and i'm so thrilled he's still with us this guy is beyond he's just beyond but his oh my god He completely channels the quiet elegance, the calm of Ted Brodigan. He, he's just this wise, interesting, kind, oh my god, I just, uh, I'm trying not to get choked up just thinking about it. This is the power of this movie, guys. Just, oh wow. So Anthony Hopkins is Ted Brodigan. Just drop everything, guys, and watch him. He's wonderful, in my opinion. I just, and then, and then we have sweet baby Anton Yelkin, who I did not see how old he was when this came out. I'm assuming eight or nine, maybe. Yeah, eight or nine must have been. Um, maybe younger. I, I need. I should have looked that up. You, you guys can look it up. You could see how old he was. But Okay, so firstly, the other reason I was also crying, Anton Yelkin, um, for those of you who don't know, died in a very, very tragic accident. I don't even really want to talk about it because I will weep, um, but a very tragic accident, and he was very young, um, really at the start of an amazing film career. He had always, already accomplished so much, but um, truly, truly, like, gut-wrenching tragic accident that should not have happened and this blessed person. Um yeah, so seeing this little boy, my guys. Oh, he's so good. It's just he's he just brings this intensity to Sweet Bobby, but also this just precious wounded boy and the way he just connects to Ted so much. Um I'm Oh, I hope I can keep it together just talking about this film, guys. It's The performances are so touching and if you watch it at all, just watch it for Ted Brodigan and Bobby and their bond and they do such an amazing job, both of these actors connecting to one another and um, also Carol Gerber, the actress who uh, portrays her. All of these performances are off the chain, my friends. They're just, it just makes this movie so incredible. I also think Hope Davis, cast as Bobby's mom, Liz Garfield, wonderful job. She has a perfect balance of not being a total wench, but also being very detached and just not being all the way in when it comes to loving Bobby and uh, great, great performances all over the place. The second thing I'd like to mention about the movie, structurally, this is interesting. So we do start the film with a present-day look at Bobby slash Robert Garfield, who is a photographer. Um, So it starts off kind of where Hearts in Atlantis goes in the later story incarnations, which we'll talk about more next week, but. Then it swiftly does a flashback to Bobby and his mom and Ted Brodigan moving in for the first time um, and them all interacting. And we see Sully John and Carol and Bobby. And then the entire film is low men in yellow coats. The entire movie is our story. And then toward the end, uh, we have, again, we resume the introduction of a present day gray-haired Bobby Garfield, Robert Garfield, Um, but not much is done with it. It's like the present day was merely just a tiny preamble to get us back to the flashback, which the entire movie is Low Men in Yellow Coats. And then at the very end, we have just a few minutes of connecting with the past, but uh, yeah, it's mostly Low Men in Yellow Coats, but I get Hearts in Atlantis is a sexier title, so um, I don't think you need to read any other story but Low Men in Yellow Coats to watch the movie. It's perfect. Um, The other thing that's done is the Dark Tower stuff is not present uh, really very much at all um, in terms of uh, uh, other than the an- the lost pet signs, the low men are treated as very much in the background. They're never really in the foreground at all. They don't wear yellow. Um, they're not scary looking. There's not a lot of emphasis placed on them, which is I liked it because it just makes the story more accessible. It really makes it to where you don't know much about Ted other than he's very psychic um, and very gifted and can pass his gift to Bobby a little bit. So I, I like the fact that the film, you know, did not open a can of worms and go dark tower with it, but just kept everything really subtle. So the viewer just focused on the performances and just was so moved by these characters because they're heartbreaking. One of my favorite, uh, scenes that was actually different from the story is when our trio of Sally, John Carroll and Bobby first encounter the St. Gabriel bullies, Harry Doolin, of course, leading the pack. Um, instead of a character named Rionda who saves the day and breaks up them almost getting beat up by the St. Gabe boys, it's actually Ted. And Ted confronts Harry, or Harry actually charges up on Ted and wants to intimidate him. And, oh man, guys, I won't spoil it because it's great, but let's just say Ted reveals some stuff and shocks that little shit. (laughs) Um, just uh, to his core and it was great. And I really enjoyed the adaptation of that scene and how uh, they took a different, more dramatic um, reveal with it. I loved it. Um, The other thing I loved is the ending is a lot sunnier. We have a warmer, more hopeful ending, especially between the relationship with Bobby and his mom. It's ending on a sunnier note which I understand why they did that because um, the story being the first in the collection ends on a much more grimmer note. There's a little bit of hope in it, but it's, it's a little darker. So I like that it feels good to watch the film version and see a more hopeful ending, um, I liked it. It worked, um, especially just, like, a brief snapshot of a really solid adaptation. They did a great job with some of the key moments, um, the more climactic scenes. Uh, I I'm a happy camper, guys. I really enjoyed it, and mostly for the perf- performances. I just, seeing Anton Yelkin breaks my heart in a lot of ways. His performance is... Uh, I am speechless. His performance is incredible. He's such a young, precious, person who uh absolutely channels the character of bobby garfield and breaks your heart and and i cried a lot on several moments all over the place and then ted broadigan there's no better than anthony hopkins there's just no better he's a perfect 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 ted broadigan where i just want to know everything in his mind and i want to see all the things he's seen and and i i would follow him anywhere actually so i really hope ted broadigan appears in the dark tower because i'm in love with him as a character and uh would like more of him. So I highly recommend, guys, please check out Low Men in Yellow Coats. If you don't want to continue on with the rest of Hearts in Atlantis, I I would say that's okay. Definitely pick it back up and finish it, and we'll talk about that more next week. But please, please, please read Low Men in Yellow Coats. King's writing is great. The character development, great. Um, Dark Tower fans, you will be happy. Although if you're a Dark Tower fan, I don't meet many lukewarm Dark Tower fans. You all are all pretty passionate, so I'm sure you've already read this. So um, please, if you haven't, check out the 2001 film by Scott Hicks, and just uh, have a tissue with you because I truly feel that the performances from Anthony and Anton are uh, will melt the cold, dead heart of any cynic. So please check that out. And that's all I have for this week, guys. I apologize for the lateness. I know this one came out a little later than I would have liked. Forgive me, forgive me. Um, But if you would uh, please do so, if you haven't already, uh, drop a five-star on Apple Podcasts so we can reach more King readers. Um, as we head into the new year. And if the spirit moves you, feel free to say something nice. Um, I would love that so, so much. You can also say hi on the socials. I would love to hear from you and uh, receive any feedback you have or thoughts on an episode or any ideas for potential new episodes or novels you'd like me to check out. You can also write to me at underratedsk at gmail. I read it and I read and check it frequently. And you guys are so amazing. And I've met a lot of incredible constant readers who have wrote in. So please uh, say hi. I'm always uh, willing to talk shop and talk about King and these episodes. So next week is Hearts in Atlantis Part Two, where we're going to take a look at the final three slash technically four narratives. I say three because the last one is so small. Um, But then we will, I think that Hearts in Atlantis is such a cool, meaty collection. We really did need two episodes to do it right. So I hope you guys enjoy. Take care, my friends. Keep breathing in and out and wear a mask. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I'll see you later. Bye-bye.